Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Last Drinks Podcast, a new conversation about how to navigate an awesome life without alcohol, reframing the cultural norms around alcohol in our lives, and hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Hey everyone, welcome to Last Drinks. Now, I've got a level with you guys. I'm pretty new to this podcasting game. This podcast for me is my passion project. I love putting it together because I'm doing it on my own terms. I'm having the conversations that I want to have. I'm in control of the narrative and I love the feedback that I'm getting on this podcast. But to be fair, just to reiterate, I'm very new to the podcasting space. So when I got a Facebook message from Jay Mueller, who is one of the best podcast producers that I know of, he has a really incredible resume. He has the best reputation in the podcasting and broadcast space. Like what he does is make excellent podcasts and create gold content, like award-winning stuff. This guy, he really is the best in the biz. So when Jay Mueller, the brains behind Bad Producer Productions, the podcast and content creation guru, reached out and mentioned that he was really proud of me for launching a podcast and he'd been sober for 20 plus years and he'd love to share his story on Last Drinks. I pretty much fainted. So this for me is a really important chat because Jay came to me with this story because he trusts what I'm doing here. And for somebody like Jay to trust me in the podcast space with his sobriety story is really, truly humbling. The other great thing about recording a podcast with somebody who's like really good at recording podcasts is the audio quality is really amazing because he has like the best equipment. This is a beautiful chat. This is an honest chat. And to have somebody who I look up to in the broadcast and podcast space, trust me with their story, really, it's a beautiful full circle moment for me. So this is this is a podcast episode I, I truly am proud of. And I'm very grateful to Jay for reaching out and trusting me with his story. Please enjoy Last Drinks with Jay Mueller. Shall we start Jay Mueller? With your last drink, can you tell me about your last drink? You bet. Uh, August 19th, 1997. And I was in a bar what? alone. Was Hanson In Tempe, playing? Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish. Oh, my God. That would, have been, that would have been too good. That probably, I probably wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been my last drink because I would have looked at that as being a good night. Oh, yeah, okay. But I was there and uh, completely alone and yeah. I was so muddled. And so out of it and broke, I had my last drink that I spent my last couple of bucks on and I chewed the ice out of the glass Mm -hmm. because I thought 
there was booze in the glass. Maybe there's some booze left in the ice. And I got it all the way down to nothing, set it on the bar, and I walked out. And I drove home drunk and went in and just thought, I cannot keep living like this. No. I can't keep doing this. Everything I thought I wanted, I thought, you know, I've, I've got it. And yet I'm miserable and all of the problems I'm having, I just don't want to do this anymore. And I cried myself to sleep on the couch Oh, and I didn't know that was going to be my last drink. I mean, I had no idea, right? Mm. Like, I mean, it was just, it was another one of those nights. It was another one of those, this is not working Yeah. and nothing is working. It's not just this, it's nothing is working. And, you know, and that was it. And it turns out that 25 years later, that was the last drink. Wow. So can you paint a picture of what your life is like at that moment? So obviously you're drinking a lot, but like what are the the big ticket items in your life that you had, I guess, expected to make you feel something? You know, was there a level of success? Are you killing it in your career? Like what were the things that were going on for you in 1997? So I thought that I was killing it in my career, but I was a pain in the ass. (laughs) I was working for a television network in Phoenix and I was in the newsroom and I worked the night shift, which was very convenient to get out to a bar straight after and and drink to oblivion afterwards. And then you had all morning to sort of recover and then go into work and do it all again. Mm. And I just thought that's the way it was meant to be, right? Like you studied journal, I studied journalism. I worked in a small town in Indiana for a little while and everybody drank, everybody got loaded, uh, any night of the week, it just didn't matter. And I was just like, yep, college just continues. My college experience just keeps rolling through and this is the way I'm going to live. And then to be in Phoenix and to be working at a big station and going, wow, this is, this is huge. This is awesome. Mm -hmm. But to have everything else for me to push it all away, you know? thousands of dollars in debt. I've got a, a soon to be ex-wife at that moment. Um, I've got a family that thinks everything's going okay because I lived on the other side of the country and I would lie to them Mm. every day, every time they called, how you doing? How's everything going? It's great. Oh my God. It's great. Oh my God. I'm living the dream. I'm living the dream. You would not believe it. Yep. And so I, I just, I lied to everybody about everything. And the job I had, but just barely. Yeah. But the thing that I had at the job, and this is the thing that I think is important with what you're doing, Maz, is I had somebody who had said to me that they were sober. And I knew enough to know that that meant more than just not drinking. Yes. So I had been at a Christmas party at this guy's house. And I got out of control, drank all night long. And I was having a pretty rough time a few months later. And I said... We need to have another night like we had at your Christmas party. That was awesome. It was so good. Yeah. Uh, let's get a bottle of rum. Let's go spit it, split it. Let's go do all these things. And he said, I got news for you. Um, I've been sober eight years and uh, you drank that all by yourself. And I was just there, just sort of watching. Wow. I said, wow. And my first reaction was, how cool am I to be able to <laughs> drink an entire bottle on my own? Like, I didn't need that guy to, to drink with me or have a good time. I did it all myself. It's and so funny when I, that that's like 
That is a thought. It's yeah. like, well, let me just first of all congratulate myself on being so great <laughs> yeah. at drinking. Let's look at the positives. Yeah. I'm so good at drinking. But then the sobering thought yeah. kicks in of like, oh, God, like, oh, I did all of that by myself. I did all of it by myself. Mm. And I remembered that conversation. And so the two days later, I was at work. It's August in Phoenix, so it's like, you know, 109 degrees at 10 o'clock at night when I finish, it's hot. And I just, I bailed him up in the laneway behind the station. I said, Hey, uh, a few minutes, a few months ago, you told me that you were sober. Um, how did you stop? Mm. And I'm forever grateful because he spent about 20 minutes with me right then, right there telling me his story and what happened. And he said, you know what? He said, if you, make some choices and make some changes, you could probably do it as well. Um, And so I thought, okay, I'll give this a shot. And what he said to me was, hey, maybe you've got a drinking problem, maybe you don't. He said, it sounds to me like you do, and from Mm -hmm. what I've seen, you get after it pretty hard. Um, But if you want to test to see if you've got a a problem with alcohol, try to stop. you got to stop. And if it's easy, no, no problem. Get on, move on with your life. Mm. Look at the other things that are causing problems then. Maybe it's a whole bunch of other things. Um, And if it's not easy, or even if it's sort of kind of hard, Mm. then you really want to look at your drinking. And it was hard. It was immediately hard and immediately difficult and not what I wanted to be doing. I Mm. wanted to drink. I just wanted to drink. And yet I had told him that I would give it a shot. So I, um, I didn't drink for a little while and that has then, you know, added up to to where I am today. It's really interesting, Jay, and I'm finding these conversations so amazing because everyone's sobriety story is different. It's unique in its own way. And, you know, for you, it sounds to me like you didn't plan to quit drinking. You knew you needed to change your relationship with alcohol. You had a really sobering conversation with somebody who had been sober for a number of years and they were like, hey, give it a go. So when it comes to accountability, how do you navigate those first few weeks where, for me, I know when I stopped drinking, all I did was think about drinking. It was like this this feedback loop was like, okay, well, you can't drink today because you said you're not drinking because you're taking a month off because you plan to, you know, like, so how, like, what accountabilities did you have in place when you, I guess, went down that road, which was so different to the road that led you to that bar that night? Yeah. For the first two weeks, I had no accountability. I just white knuckled through, uh, every day. That's hard, man. I would just, it was tough. It was hard. And, you know, I, as I went to AA, so that was my path to sobriety. Um, and the, in that first conversation I said to him, I said, what do I do? And I Mm -hmm. said, uh, he said, well, I went to AA. He shared that with me and he said, it works. And I said, okay, how do I get in touch with them? He said, they're in the phone book because there were phone books in 1997. Oh, it's the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Go home, and, go home and look them up it's, is what he said. Oh, it's so different. You go yeah. home and you look it up in the yellow yeah. pages. That's right. And then I went and uh, looked it up and I did not call the number at first. And then mm. I found myself sort of two weeks in thinking, if I don't do this now, I'm, I'm just, it's, this is just going to be another broken promise. This is just going to be another failed experiment. It's just... I've got to do it right now. Mm-hmm. And I got to that point where, thank God, somebody answered the phone, right? Because that was the only time I was going to make that call. 
Wow. I was not going to, I was praying that I got an answering machine or that I could hang up. And then I could say, well, you tried. I gave it a call. I called the number. I did what you said. Didn't work. Nobody answered. And somebody answered. And they said, hello. And I said, "Um, I need to know more about AA. What do I do? And he said, well, you know, there's an office. Come on down. Um, We'll have a chat. I'll give you, let you know where some meetings are and, and that sort of thing. And I got in the car and I drove over to the office in, in Phoenix. The office was, at that time, it was at 7th Street and Camelback. And if anybody knows where that is, that's like right in the center of town. Right. And as I drove by, I was convinced. I was like, this is not very anonymous. <laughs> I'm going to have to walk in here. Everybody's going to see me. I was immediately convinced mm-hmm. that my boss was going to drive by. Oh, wow. My friends were going to drive by. Yeah. My parents were suddenly going to be in town and they were going to be like, Hey, what's, what's this guy doing? What's this loser doing going into this building uh, that if you don't know what it is, you would have no idea Mm. what it is. And I walked in and he gave me a meeting book, which was another thing, right? Like it was an actual physical copy of a meeting book stapled together that volunteers had put together. I think it cost 75 cents. I like threw a dollar at him and got out of there. I grabbed the book, went out, put it in my glove box and it stayed there for another two weeks. So I was like, I was able to make it another two weeks just on that little bit of action. Wow. And then I got to another point again where I'm like, well, what's, what are you doing? I mean, if you don't, if you don't use that, mm-hmm. right? Like if you don't use that and you don't go, what's the point? You have to at least go. And um, so I, you know, started going to meetings and started doing all of those things and it worked for me and, yeah. you know, it, it changed my life. Were you surprised? Look, I didn't do the AA path. I have friends that have. So I'm quite, I feel like I'm quite savvy in what a meeting is. I've read the manifesto. I feel like I know a little bit about AA. When you went there, were you surprised that there were other people that were going through what you were going through? Totally. I was convinced that all of my problems were my own. They were unique to me. And that not only because they were unique to me, I had to figure them out on my, by myself. Mm. Like my idea of what it meant to be a man was if you have a problem, you sort it out yourself. You don't ask for help. You don't ask for anybody to, you know, how did you do this? What did you do? You just go and figure it out yourself. And so I thought that to go and then to go sit in a meeting and listen to people from all walks of life yeah. and all sorts of things and to hear my story coming out of their mouth was incredible. Yeah. And I went, oh, wow. Okay. I'm, I'm not alone. And this is the thing, you know, you talk about everybody's sobriety path being different and specific to that individual. And I think that the experiences are specific. I think our experiences are specific, but I think the sort of the general themes, they're all the same, oh. right? The guilt, the shame, the resentment, the remorse, the anger, the fear, all of that stuff. It's yes. mine's different to yours, mm. but the experience of when I felt that unimaginable shame of, yes. of just being somebody who is 25 years old and my life is over because I can't drink. I'm not going to be able to drink. My life is done. That's it. I've peaked. I'm not going to do anything even remotely interesting. No one's going to want to hang out with me. No one's going to want to love me. Like all of that stuff that your mind starts to tell you. Oh my God. It's all bullshit. It is. And, you know, to hear that from somebody else saying, this is what I did. This is how I felt. Mm. And to know that they then were able to 
move on with their lives and do something positive with their lives. Yeah. That was crucial. I think there's this, I mean, I grew up thinking that I was a unique snowflake, Jay. I really did. I really thought I was yeah. something special. You know, and if you look if you look on paper, like my bio checks out to be pretty great. But, you know, what unites us is this dependency on this drug that gets introduced to us that we have zero communication on how damaging it is, how toxic it is, how addictive it is, and how much it can ruin you in your mind and your body. And so I agree that this umbrella of we've come to a place where we've realized that our relationship with alcohol is not working for us. And what we do from that point, that's the convergent of all of the stories that unites us. And I fully believe in the power of shared story. Just like I believe, which I love that it built into AA is help somebody else. It's like it's like you become somebody's sober buddy and that is all inbuilt because that, that positive feedback loop of helping one another, which really when you break it down is almost like a biblical thing, you know, it's like treat the person next to you how you want to be treated, help out a brother or a sister in need. I love that that's built into it because that helps everyone stay on this path. But we all come to this path and we're like, how do we even get here? You know, and you're so right in I totally mirror the guilt, the shame, the fear. I was so scared of sobriety because for me it's like alcohol was so a part of my identity. I had no idea who I was without it. And that person terrified me because, like, what if she wasn't as cool? What if she wasn't as popular? What if she couldn't get those awesome jobs? And it turns out, and you you would know this as, as much as I do and hopefully for the people listening who are on the other side of sobriety so far, you are absolutely your best self without it. You And, and that person is no one to be afraid of. But it is so terrifying to come to a point where you have to change. And change is hard, man. It takes work and it, it takes, you know, making different choices. And the thing is that when I drank, I couldn't even imagine a different choice. Mm. I just thought, this is, this is what I do. Like, you know, what do you, what do you mean go out to dinner and not have a bottle of wine? What do you mean go to a party and not bring a case of beer? You know, what do you mean not, you know, sitting at home watching Saturday Night Live and drinking gin and tonics until you pass out? Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, everything I did was centered around me having a drink and that was it. And then I could look at every issue that I had in my life at that time, there was a direct line to my drinking, mm. any relationships that were, you know, falling apart or money issues or personality issues, all of those things, you know, it was because I drank a yeah. lot and, you know, I got to a point about two months in, and, you know, started to feel pretty good. And I went to the doctor for the sort of the first time in a long time. So I was like, you know what? I, I should see what's going on with me. Sure. Um, and I went and I got a call from the nurse saying, you need to call because we need to talk about your results. And I just thought, this is never good. It's this never is, good. Like, call us back. We need to talk. And I got on the line and she said, I've got to ask you, do you drink? And I said, no. And by, by this point, I'm two months without a drink. Right. And I said, no, I don't. And she said, okay, did you used to drink? And I said, yes, heavily. 
I said, mm-hmm. I haven't had a drink in two months. And she said, good, don't. Um, it will kill you. You have the start of liver disease. The enzymes in your liver are what? two and a half times where they should be. I know. I'm sitting there listening to this. I'm going, you have got to be kidding me. And well, how that's how old much I drank. You? you were like 25. 25, 25 years, years old. And I said, whoa. I said, so now I've got the voice coming back into my head going, that's it. You're a loser. Your life is over. You're like, you, you know, I told you your life was over. And she said, but look, the liver is incredibly resilient and it will correct itself. Just don't drink. So, you know, and it did within a couple of years, everything back to normal, all functioning the way it should. And that call came at just the right time because I was starting to think it wasn't that bad. Mm. You know, I think that's the other thing is you, you get the voice that tells you how terrible it is. And then you get the voice that tells you actually it wasn't that bad. Okay, that's life and death, man. That's like yeah. that call. Well, if you, if like, oh my God, I sometimes don't like having the, but what ifs, but what if hmm. you didn't quit yeah. that day and you hadn't, had not drink drunk for two months, what would, what the result would have been is so terrifying to think about that. You just go back to right. the night that you stopped and you're like, thank God. I stopped. Thank God I had that conversation in that alleyway with that person who had their journey, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I didn't didn't want to die. Still don't. But, you know, that was something I was just like, man, I've got to to get serious about this. Um, But it was also, it was just a a good reminder of, for me, to do that is uh, is not only a problem for everybody in my life, my life. It's a problem for me in a big way, in a yeah. really personal way. That's actually a really great takeaway for somebody who's sober curious. And because I, I feel like the two month mark is sometimes if you, if you don't drink for two months, you can get a little bit superhero cape about it and be like, haven't had a drink oh, for two man. months. Let's go to a bar <laughs> and see how sober I, you know what I mean? Like you try and prove to yourself yeah. that you're awesome. And then you put yourself in a really dangerous situation and you think maybe I can just handle one drink. And then all of a sudden you hear that story so many times and, you know, it could be, I guess, a, a term for it could be like a relapse or you revisit the drinking behavior. But what a great takeaway for someone who's a couple of months into sobriety, who's thinking they need to put on a superhero cape, go and make an appointment with your GP <laughs> and have a conversation <laughs> about your health. Because so yeah. often we don't have the conversation about how alcohol affects our physical body and it causes so much distress, so many stressors. There's so many negative impacts. And, you know, I feel like that really gets swept under the rug a lot of the time, but it really is a health conversation, healthy mind and healthy body. And we know for a fact, like, it's written into the World Health Organization report on cancer. Like, it causes cancer and so many other diseases in our body. And that's not saying like it's heavy drinking over a certain number of years. It's any amount of alcohol and it's all dependent on how your body responds to it. So the fact that you were so on the brink of a health crisis and you were able to rein it in, I think is really great for some people because that knowing that is like another tool in that sobriety toolkit of going like, you know, if you have a drink, it's going to kill you. You're not going to go and have a drink, right? I, I don't intend to. And I think that was part of the other thing for me is when I drank, I lost the ability to guarantee my behavior. Mm. You know, I've just hit all bets were off. 
but I think that, you know, I've got, there are things I have to do and there are things that I need to keep doing to make sure that I don't have a drink. I don't want to drink. I don't intend to drink. Okay. But I do know that if I lose sight of what I'm trying to do, the stuff can come back into my life pretty quickly. Mm. Anger, resentment, fear, all of that stuff. It's, it's just, it's out there. You know, you yeah. talk about the superhero cape. I mean, I, I like to think that I've got a dick suit that I keep <laughs> in my closet that every now and then I just, even without a drink, I just need to go, I just need to make sure it still fits and it does <laughs> and it fits and I, and I just go, oh, and I'll tell you, I was, that's, that's such a I, funny thing to think I, about. Well, I went through a few years and was convinced that all of the, all of the stuff I had done, everything that was in my life that was now out of my life, mm. that that was all because I drank. And okay. then I got to about 10 years and I realized, no, no, I, all that stuff's still there. I'm just an asshole. And I need to, I need to yes. rein in a lot of this stuff, you know? So I, I just, wow. that was confronting because yeah. there were things in my life in 1997 that I chalked up to the fact that I drank all the time. I was like, right. oh, well, I drank all the time. And then there were things in my life in 2007 where it's like, okay, pal, now what's your excuse? Yeah. You're not drinking anymore. Not, so why are you such a You're not a drinking dick? anymore. Exactly. You and know, so, and, and what do you do with that then? Like, so that's a really, that's a pretty confronting moment that, to look yourself, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and go, okay, well, I haven't been drinking for 10 years, but I've still got some behavior shit going on that I, I might need to sort out. What do you chalk yeah. that up to? Well, I think that's part of the human experience, right? We've mm. all got these sort of things inside us that we're trying to figure out. We're trying to work through. And yeah. sometimes we handle fear better than other days. And other days it gets the best of us. And I think that, you know, for me, it was just, I stopped telling the truth again. You know, I stopped being honest with myself. Yeah. You know, I started to, hey, this is all about me. Everything I've got going on right now is because I made it so. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't about the fact that I had had one conversation with a guy for 20 minutes after work and yeah. that that had set me on a different path and shown me a different way. It was because I've got this all figured out. I know what I'm doing. Everybody else just leave me alone and get out of my way. Wow. And I realized again, it's like, no, there's, that's that isolation again. That's that same sort of nonsense that was there when I was drinking. And now it's creeping back into my life and I'm sober. Mm. And you just go, what can you do? And so, you know, I went back to, you know, what works and what worked for me. And, and for me, it gets down to what you talked about, you know, service yeah. and sharing what you're going through and just being able to say to another human being, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. Mm. And that is something that helps me a lot. Yeah. And the other side of that is being able to have somebody say to me that they don't know what they're doing. They need help. And then me just being able to listen and just be there and say, yep. Okay. I get it. I've, I've been there. I've done that. And this is what I did. And yeah. this is my experience. And this is how I've, you know, moved through it or dealt with it. And it's in those conversations, I think that you realize you either have dealt with it or you're confronted with the truth of, 
actually, no, there's still some work I need to do there. Yeah. And it's that humility, you know, like being humble enough to go, meh, I'm still figuring it out. I don't have it all Mm. figured out. I'm still figuring it out. But I think the fact that you were able to be aware of where you were at is a real credit to the sobriety, right? So there's the 10 years of not drinking and then you get to a point where you can be honest with yourself because you're not suppressing and like ignoring feelings and pushing it all down and trying to forget that they're all there. You are able to, to be honest even with the big complexities of those realisations and go, okay, Jay, come on, mate. <laughs> What's going on here? And yeah. that awareness is like that jump off point for that next evolution. It's being open to looking at yourself yeah. and being, you know, not not being mean to yourself, but holding yourself to account, account and going, hey, hang on a second. Here's what you have set out to do. This is what people think of you. And yet that's not you. Yeah. You're not, you know, you know the truth. So make sure that um, you know, what you're what you're living, what you're doing, what you're saying all add up and all align. Mm. Um, and it it's not gonna be a hundred percent. But man, when it is, that's good. Yeah. That's a good thing. That's good for everybody else in my life. Um, if it's if it falls below <laughs> a certain percentage, mm. then it's it's not a lot of fun. Sure. But you know, I just think we all, whether we're we're drinking or not drinking or trying to stop drinking or trying to stay sober. We've got work to do and we do it. Yeah, we do. We show up and we do it. One of the things that I love, um, I don't, I haven't, I don't think I've said this on the podcast because it's sort of like my, this is my little, like come into the inner sanctum of my radio brain. Welcome everybody. Yes. Okay. Okay. And, um, and I've worked on some really successful shows in my career and I do, when I, when I get to talk about my career, um, I do get often the question, like, how do you think, why do you think you've been so successful? My number one rule, which I have with my team, is we have a no dickhead policy. And that is that we show up and we're just not a dick to each other. Like, even if I'm exhausted because I've been up all night because my toddler can't sleep at the moment or whatever it is, I'm going to show up and I'm going to hear your idea and try and make it pop on the air. And I'm going to bring my best self. And we just have this, it's like this unspoken thing. When we get in the room, we have a no dickhead policy. And when, and that in a team environment, if everyone does that, it sings and it shines and it can't help but glow and be successful. And I think I would love for people to just embrace that in their everyday life, in their everyday existence and that means not being a dick to yourself and punishing yourself and hurting yourself and so if we can you know have the the honesty to go am I being kind to me I'm going to be kind to it's sometimes easier to be kind to everyone else than to ourselves right but if we can be kind to ourselves first and living out of that place is so much better and there's no like there's no hangover from that and I don't mean the physical alcohol hangover but like you can have a being a jerk to everybody else hangover because then you're still swarming in that guilt. You're still carrying that backpack of shame. Then you feel bad. Then we go around the mountain again of all of this negative feelings, you know, and if you can just park that and go, let's be honest, let's be kind, start there. I think it's going to make for just so many more 
little success stories and little wins in life that don't need to be, you know, we don't need to have medals for showing up and doing a good job every day. We just need to show up and do a good job every day. Just need to show up and do the job, you know? I mean, the yeah. I remember early on somebody said to me, you plan the effort, not the outcome. Ooh, because the outcome that. is up to so many different variables that are yeah. out of your control, you know, and whereas the effort, you can bring that mm. every day. You can, you can be in control of your effort. And a lot of times, you know, you're right. When you're in those group environments and when you're in those creative environments, people's ideas, people, what they want to do or what they, it's personal to them, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of that that is personal. And so you also have to be able to navigate that and go, this is not an attack on you. This is just, we're trying to sort through this and work this all out. Yeah. And if somebody is not into that and if somebody is, you know, being angry, defensive, or disrespectful, it just makes it harder for everybody. It does. And the idea is not going to succeed anyway. Yeah. So I think if you can bring that where you look at your effort first and then you look at how can you help other people succeed, how can you be generous of spirit and generous in action and be willing to understand that we're all just trying to do the best we can. We don't have all the answers, mm. but collectively we can try to figure it out. Yeah, that, I love that. You plan the effort, not the outcome. I often, I love asking creative people this because I I think in creative industries there is this unction of like no idea is a bad idea. But I've heard some fucking terrible ideas in my time in the creative <laughs> industry and I just wholeheartedly yeah. disagree with that statement. I don't know how you feel about it. <laughs> yeah, there are some awful ideas. Yeah, but. You don't tell the person that it's a bad idea. That's the difference. You hear their shitty idea and then you go, how can we turn this into a bit of a better idea? And then somebody else goes, how do we turn that into a bit of a better idea? And by the time you've worked it out, you have a good idea. Totally. And, you know, the thing is that people who have a little bit of awareness, they realize when you say, you know what, let's focus on that one element of your idea. They realize, oh, yeah, this needs work. You know, and, and a lot of times I'll get to a point like, oh, that was so much better than that original idea. Right. And, you know, and this gets back to my, my drinking. I was incapable of getting to the next idea. Wow. It was always, this is a good idea. I'm going to do it. Mm. Uh, this is the, the best idea. I'm just going to do it. And I had no, I just had no way to, to pull back on that. And I think that you're right. You know, you want to, you want to work with people. You want to try to find a way that they can succeed ultimately. That's yeah. what we want, right? We want people to succeed. We want to succeed. And I always think that, you know, we're better off if we're all working towards that as a group. Totally. But you do need to, you do need to work through some, you know, some garbage in order to get to the, the real idea that's really going to pay off. Yeah, so did you find, like, when you stopped drinking, did you find creatively a light switch on at some point in your brain and you were like, wow, I can think clearly? Or, wow, I'm, I feel more creative than I was when I was drinking? I, uh, yes is the short answer to that. I was immediately convinced that without drinking... I was not going to be interesting or creative, that yes. I wouldn't be able to do anything, that I, I was just going to be, you know, I was just going to be that guy who 
made sure people had what they needed and they were then able to do the creative work and it wasn't going to involve me anymore because that was no longer going to be my life. Mm. And then I went through a period of there is just so much that is inside of me. I've got to get it out. I've got to get, I've, I can't sit with this stuff anymore. Yeah. It's just got to come out in some way. Um, and so, you know, I did a lot of journaling at that time and a lot of writing and, you know, all of it was just for me to just try to sort through what I was going through and try to figure out how I'm actually feeling mm. because it's a lot like those ideas, right? Your initial feeling may not be right. I'm not Right's not the right word, but it may not be accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may not be the true underlying feeling that you're going through. Um, you might want to go just a little bit deeper, even if it's just one layer deeper to try to figure out what is, what's the sort of foundation of that one feeling that you're at in the moment and being able to sit with it and work through it, um, takes time and patience and all those things. But the creativity, you know, I was in a newsroom and so it didn't, the, the thing that I worried about was being able to be on that sort of edge of having the next idea, pushing for the next store. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this different? You know, we've got a nine o'clock news bulletin. How are we going to do it different for 10 o'clock? What are we going to do for the next morning? All of those sorts of things. And once I was able to sort of get into it and be fully immersed in, in it again, it did. It just became it became a lot easier because I wasn't mm. dealing with headaches. Yeah. I wasn't dealing with that sort of fear of being found out. I wasn't lying, right? Like, I mean, mm. that was the other, like I, I would just, I would sit there and lie yeah. to my colleagues and to coworkers about why I didn't like their idea. I would justify it on something that I had read or seen and, wow. oh, that's already been done. And they'd be like, really? Has it? And I'd be like, yep. Yeah. It's already been done. You know, it's exhausting so I, too, right? I, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't keep track of it. You're going to be fine. You're going to get caught. Yeah. It's coming out. Eventually it's coming out. People are going to go, that guy, he he's full of it. Mm. So it just became easier because you, you, you didn't have to, you, you had kind of one ball that you had to keep in the air and you didn't have to worry about all those other ones that were too big, too heavy, and too difficult to juggle anyway. Yeah, and I think the anxiety of the lies catching up with you it's like was somebody gave me this really odd scenario you know the like would you rather this or this and it was like would you rather would you rather have a million dollars or just have like a snail it was something to do with like a snail following you around for the rest of your life and I was like (laughs) do you know what I mean like this this scenario of like something like a snail following you around every day for the rest of your life. And I'm like, but it's a snail. I'm like, oh, but then I need to sleep and the snail is going to get you. You know what I mean? And it's like yeah. so the lies are like that. It's like they might only be small lies, but you carry It's like you stick it in your shame backpack, stick it on the back, and then yeah. all of a sudden you're carrying this load. And then when you stop all of that because you're having some honesty, some sobriety, some breathing space, and some clarity of thought, my God. God, life gets easier. You don't have to keep up with all of the bullshit. Yeah, that's exactly right. It becomes, you know, I mean, they call it a moment of clarity for a reason, right? Mm. You you get a sort of a clear picture of how you're living your life and, and what you can do and, and how you can do it. It is one of those things. I mean, I, I think about it. I've got friends who are sober now. And, and when I when I was newly sober, I didn't have any friends mm. who were sober. I had the guy that I worked with 
who became a friend. Um, and, you know, they've turned their lives around. Yeah. Their lives have changed for the better and not just theirs, for the people in them as well. And, you know, it's just, it, it takes time and it takes effort and it takes patience, but yeah. it takes willingness to be able to look at your life differently and think maybe there is another way. Absolutely. And just like, you know, the person that you spoke to for 20 minutes in the alleyway was the key to unlocking your sobriety. This conversation I know is the key to unlocking other people's because you are okay to share your story. And you know what, you've, you've done 25 years of sobriety and damn, we know it is a good thing. And for you to be able to stop drinking in 1997 is like, I don't even get it because I, I quit drinking in 2015 and it was hard because there was barely any resourcing. There was barely anything available. And I feel like now there's so much support. There's, it, you know, sober curiosity is a term. There, is, there are sober living hashtags with like millions of imprints online. It's a real thing now that people I think have a lot more access to. So to do it back then I think was quite lonely and – I mean, it's just really admirable that you you went there, Jay, and you were like, this is good for me. I'm going to keep doing this thing. I think it's really great. Thanks. And thank you for doing this, you know, because <laughs> it is, it's going to help and you are helping people. And seven years is nothing that that's, that's seven years, a lot of days, yeah, you know, is. so don't, yeah. don't ever, don't ever underestimate that. And I think that, you know, People learn from anything when they're willing to learn from it. And there were a lot of people who came before me, and there's mm. going to be a lot of people who come after me, and there's going to be a lot of people who don't make it, and there's going to be a lot of people who struggle through it their entire lives and never get the chance mm. because they never, it just never enters their world. And I remember talking to um, a Jesuit priest who I said, you know, I don't understand why this is happening now. Like I've had parents and family members and all sorts of people talk to me about my behavior, my drinking, all this stuff. What, right. what happened? And this Jesuit priest said, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of Zen Buddhist philosophy. I love and this. I was like, oh, this is scandalous. Yeah, I and love I, this. Jesuit priest quoting Zen Buddhism. And he said, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yes. And I just remember going, well, okay, that's what happened to me. And the other thing that I did is, you know, I talked about lying and things. And I, I was a big liar for books that I had read. Like if you mentioned, oh, I read this great book. I'd be like, yeah, it's awesome. I oh, read it really? Too I loved, loved everything about it. And then, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't keep it up. And I would just have to say, sorry, I don't know why I've just told you that I read that book. I've never even heard of that book. I don't know what it's about. Okay, that so is can tell so you, interesting. Isn't it bizarre? That's it's a so bizarre weird. thing. It's, it's weird because it, what it was, I didn't want to ever be thought of as dumb or stupid or less than, or I was convinced that if you knew what was going on in my head, you were going to say, uh, uh, not interested, you know, you're alone, go, go deal with your own stuff. Yeah. So that was the, the sort of, you know, place that I was at when I quit drinking but I remember before I got sober. I bought a book called Drinking a Love Story. Oh. And it was written by a woman named Carolyn Knapp. And Carolyn uh, was a reporter in Boston. And it was her story of getting sober. And I remember 
I, I had bought the book and then it sat on my nightstand for a couple of months. Yeah. And then when I was newly sober, I read it because guess what? If you're not out drinking every night, you suddenly have a lot of time. So much free time. You have a lot of, it's wild. It's, it's insane. It terrified me at the start. I was like, what am I going to (laughs) do? And then I start cleaning out my cupboards and then there's cupboards in cupboards. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so I read her book and I was just, it's like, holy cow, this is my story. She is telling my story. This, this person who lives on the other side of the country has a whole different background, everything. Mm. This is me. I, I am in the pages of this book in a very real way. And that was something that just sort of crystallized it for me as well, because I was yeah. like, you know, that that's, there's some truth there. Yeah. You read it in black and white like that and you go, okay, I can either choose to ignore this or I can choose to learn more about it. Mm. And in, when you read your own story, when you see yourself in someone else's story, you feel seen. And really, ultimately, totally. we're all human and we just want to be seen and heard. And, you know, so many other right. things, but it really does boil down to I just want someone to see me for who I am and where I'm at. And that, again, is like these conversations. I know someone's going to hear themselves in this exchange and then they'll go, I feel heard. And then you can, with that feeling, you know, be brave enough to go, okay, maybe this drinking thing isn't working out for me. Let's do something different. Other people have done it and they're okay. They're going all right. Yeah, they are. And there will be people who listen to this as well who will be thinking, that's not me. Mm. That's not me at all. I'm different. I'm different. I need something else. Maybe. Maybe you are. Probably aren't. Yeah, wow. Oh, Jay, thank you so much for just having a kick-ass sobriety story for starters. Thank you for being humble enough to share. Thank you. Thanks for letting me share and thanks for uh, responding and for putting yourself out there. I wouldn't have known had you not put that out there when I saw it at that time. Mm. You know, that's something that I would have just been oblivious to at the moment. Um, but I've always uh, been a fan of what you do and I'm, I'm a mm, big fan you. of what you're doing now. Thanks, mate. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. That's the thing. One of the things that I, I used to do because there weren't podcasts, but you would yeah. do cassette tapes of people telling their story. Yes. So there would be these conventions wow. or these meetings in all parts of the world. Yeah. And so you could listen to somebody tell their story in Minneapolis and you could just, you know, listen to it in the car. Yeah. And I would always get, and it was sort of just, it was very similar to kind of this. Isn't right? that you're wild? Hearing how people, yeah. It's like new technology, but not new technology. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. You know. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.